Okay. Uh, today I'd like to welcome Dr. Devong Patel. Uh, Devong runs the uh, ID service in, in the uh, medical ICU and uh, is the master antibiotic steward of that unit. <laughs> no, but, uh, and does a lot of uh, international work on in infectious disease. Started an HIV uh, training program in, in Africa, as well as have, is heavily involved in Haiti as well. As well. And um, is uh, we're lucky to have him here to talk to us on fungal infections in the ICU. So you know, it was originally going to be fungal and viral, but just the quantity of information was uh, a little too much. So we we'll cut it back to just fungal. We'll do viral another day. All right, good afternoon, guys. Um, I, I like to make things interactive. I know this is sort of a big audience, but if you guys have questions, raise your hand, shout out, whatever, it doesn't really matter. Like Mike said, I was going to do fungal and viral. That's what he asked me to do. That wasn't what I planned to do. That's what he asked me to do. And I said, do you realize that's a lot of things? So we're just going to do fungal infections in the ICU. Even, even with that, even though I cut it, it's about 50 slides, okay? A lot of them are pictures and stuff, so it won't be so bad. But it might get a little dry at times. And, and I try to put some evidence in there where I could, but when you're covering something like this that's so broad, it's kind of hard to get into the nitty-gritty of stuff. So there is some stuff in there, but if there's questions, you know, raise your hand. Um, I'm sure I've looked through it all, but I didn't put it all on the slides because it's a lot of material to cover in a short period of time. So... First, we're going to start with um, candidal infections because this is probably the most common uh, fungal infection you'll encounter in the ICU, and it, and it uh, affects all hosts, not just immunocompromised hosts. The, the ones that I cover after this are mostly immunocompromised host infections. So invasive candidal infections is something that you guys will run into frequently no matter which sort of um, intensive care unit you work in. So when we talk about candida, they're commensal yeast, they're normal part of the skin GI tract and mucous membranes. This is why it makes it difficult to figure out when is it truly an infection and when is it not. Um, 30 to 80% of us are, are colonized, higher rates than those who are HIV infected. I, I put HIV there because I have the most data about HIV, but probably anybody who's immunocompromised. Um, but in general, does not cause infection for most of us, right? Unlike uh, you know, other things like Neisseria, right? Neisseria can colonize us, but it can also cause meningitis in a fair amount. Staph aureus would be another example, right? A lot of us are colonized with Staph aureus, but often does cause significant infection. But Canada doesn't have the same sort of uh, pathogenesis. So those who have cell-mediated immune system uh, dysfunction, such as HIV-positive patients or patients who've had uh, transplant or chemotherapy, um, you're more likely to get infections. Those who have impaired epithelial barriers, um, so lines and things like that, of course, are the most common. Um, and, and if there's been a disruption to the no normal bacterial flora, okay? So, again, something that you'll often see in the intensive care units. What we see most commonly is Canada albicans, but there are other pathogens, Canada glabrata, tropicalis, cruzii, parapsilosis. Those are some of the other ones. I'm not going to go into that to the specifics very much, but um, for candida albicans, we'll talk about what's the ideal treatment strategy. So, uh, candidal infections, um, well, 15% of all healthcare associated infections are fungal. All right, the other big ones, as you know, are Staph aureus and, and uh, C. diff and things like that. 
But this is the fourth most common bloodstream infection in the United States. When you look at Europe, it's maybe some other organisms, and, and uh, Canada comes in maybe sixth or something like that. But for us in the United States, it's the fourth most common bloodstream infection with the 40 to 60% mortality. So therefore, um, you know, what I always tell the residents, and you guys have probably heard this over and over, it's never a contaminant in the blood, right? So that's like the worst uh, call that we get is like, oh, we have yeast in the blood, but we don't think it's real, okay? It's always real. Just like Staph aureus is always real in the blood. I mean, the fellows always tell, the ID fellows always like, so-and-so called us and from ortho, nobody's ortho, right? They're surgical critical care, not ortho critical care. Uh, not Andy Pollock's people. Okay, yeah, there is no such thing. You're right. Bone fix. Um, so, you know, they'll say, oh, there's staph aureus in the blood. We're not sure if it's real, right? It's always real. Just like that, yeast in the blood is always real. So clinical manifestations of candidemia, as you guys know, it's fever, SIRS, sepsis, right? You can call it sepsis if you, if you know it's candida. Um, so it's not very helpful, right? You have an ICU patient that's on pressors, has fever. You're not sure why, and they may be candidemic, but you don't know, okay? Peritonitis, obviously something that you see much more commonly in the surgical ICUs. Um, you know, we talk about UTIs, catheter-associated UTIs. Um, Mike can tell you from, from you know, uh, what I do in the me medical ICU, I rarely treat yeast in the urine. Um, you'll find some people that do. Uh, I don't think any of the shot trauma, like Rabinowitz, Kaplan, I don't, I don't think most of them. You got, who, who's in shot trauma? Yeah, do they usually treat those? Yeah, they don't usually treat those either. It, but you will find people who do. Um, and, and there probably are real instances of catheter-associated UTIs due to candida, but it's really hard to distinguish from just being colonizing the catheter. So typically what we say is remove the catheter, uh, you know, or change the catheter and repeat it but look for a different source. Because I think what becomes all too easy is to say, well, it's a Canada UTI that's causing the, uh, the fever, and that's where we're going to stop, okay? And in general, you know, most cystitises don't cause a lot of fever, right? In the ICU, they do for, for a host of different reasons. But remember, most cystitis is an outpatient um, disease. So while it can cause significant disease, it's, it's uh, not as common, especially with candida. Yeah. 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 So, so Mike's basically asking, when is it a caudi? And the, the, that's the problem. We don't know, and it's very specific to the patient. And and actually, we have I, I, maybe you guys have heard this, but University of Maryland has one of the highest caudi rates in the country. But everybody in infection control, and, and most of us who, who actually work in the units, don't really think it's true because a lot of uh, colonization is being called catheter-associated UTI. And, so, and, and, they, and they have to do that, right? Because if you guys say, hey, there's white blood cells here and there's a pathogen and I'm going to treat with antibiotics, then they have to treat it as a, as a catheter-associated UTI, whether it is or isn't, right? So that's why, that's why as, as the shock trauma folks do, and as I do, we try not to treat most of those because um, it's probably not and you really want to look for an alternative source. But sometimes it's very convincing, right? So if you've got somebody who's... Uh, you know, we'll talk about it when we go through how we look at these uh, yeast um, cultures. But if you see somebody who's had a positive culture, they've been on broad-spectrum antibiotics, they're not getting better, they still have fever, and that's the only place you've grown anything, then, yeah, probably it's real and you want to treat it. But it's, it's, it's not that common, right? And it's not an invasive organism in, in most hosts, right? And so when we see this in 
the 25-year-old who came in in you know, a motorcycle accident and now has Canada in the urine, it's probably not real, right? It's probably not. Um, so risk factors. Uh, the traditional risk factors you, you guys all know, but you think about things like Hickman catheters, being in the ICU, and we'll talk about why the ICU is, is specific, gastric acid suppressants, we're finding more and more infections associated with gastric acid suppressants, right, like C. diff and uh, ventilator-associated pneumonias and many other things, um, NG tubes and antibiotics. Broad-spectrum antibiotics is, is one of the big ones. So when you look at ICU patients, you look at central lines, um, TPN, if the patient's on TPN, they're obviously at higher risk because you're giving them uh, the nutrition for the yeast. Broad-spectrum antibiotics, high Apache scores, abdominal surgery, and then GI perforations without um, abdominal surgery, although most of those are operated on, but uh, many of them aren't anastomosis leaks. Those all make sense, right, because this colonizes the GI tract, so it's going to leak out just as the other bugs like the gram-negatives are going to do the same thing. So acute renal failure is probably a, a, a more related to the severity of illness that predisposes to candida infection, but that's an association you'll see. And then neutropenic patients, okay? And the neutropenic patients, the big reason there is because they don't have um, the, uh, they have translocation of yeast across the, across the gut, all right? So when we talk about most of these candidemias, most of these candidal infections, we think about lines, 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 right? If you pull the line out, you're going you're gonna to take care of where the infection came from. That's where the infection started. But in neutropenic patients, the thought is that these, these yeasts are getting in through the um, gastrointestinal lumen, okay? So it's not the lines. It's actually the gut that's the source. So in those situations, do we pull the line, okay? And that's a lot of controversy about that. So when you have somebody where you think they have candidemia, or actually we, you've confirmed candidemia, typically we want to use an echinocandin, so mycofungin, caspofungin, something like that, until speciation and sensitivities are available. Now, fluconazole is sort of our mainstay for candida albicans, all right? So if you're here at Maryland and you've got somebody with candida albicans, fluconazole is probably going to work, all right? But the problem is you don't know what it is for a few days. So we typically, especially in the ICU, will say start with, the, with an echinocandin and then switch to fluconazole once you know what it is. If you read the official guidelines from the Infectious Diseases Society of America or other guidelines, they'll say that you can start with fluconazole if the patient's not very sick. Again, I'm going to focus more on what you guys deal with, which is the septic patient, right? So, um, or severe sepsis. So you're going to want to start with an echinocandin in these patients. Um, if they're neutropenic, you might want to consider giving them amphotericin B. That's the, uh, the drug that we have the most data with when it comes to uh, fungal infections. So candida, even though it's sensitive to fluconazole or echinocandins, you might want to do amphotericin B due to the severe neutropenia in these patients. The official recommendations are to do daily blood cultures until, it's, until they're negative, Okay. And we don't typically do that with all bacteremias or fungemias. Oh, well, we do with fungemias, not all bacteremias. But, you know, I, I would recommend this like with Staph aureus, for example, or with uh, Canada, because if you get endocarditis with either one of these organisms, um, they tend to be more surgical than medical diseases. So you want to go 14 days from the negative culture. Again, these are the official guidelines. And the recommendation is to remove central lines, Okay. So oftentimes we run into this with IR. I don't know what the data is. I, I guess at some point I need to go down there and find it. They, always, they have some papers that say that you can remove, you can, uh, you can treat through a line, uh, depending on the word. I, I don't know. 
But, you know, it's pretty clear from the guidelines that you're supposed to be removing these catheters, especially with MRSA or any staph warriors, and especially with candida, okay, because the line is the source. Now, the caveat to that is maybe this, the neutropenic patients, where the GI uh, source is, is more likely. So, and you got to think about those patients. They usually have ports. They usually have something that's been there for a long time. It's maybe a little bit more difficult to remove it. They are neutropenic. They're more likely to get infections with the procedure to remove the, the line, and you may consider not removing it. Um, here, I defer those kinds of decisions to, to Mike Kleinberg, who, who does our cancer center ID. But you will find some people that will say not to remove lines in those patients. But in general, the consensus is that if you have candida in the blood, you should be removing any lines that are in. And then the other thing is to do an eye exam. Okay, so for a long time, this was just sort of, uh, uh, you know, something people were recommended to do. Do an eye exam because people get candida. Um, they get candida endophthalmitis. And why does that matter? You're treating it anyway. Well, the reason it matters is... you. You're now going to treat them for four to six weeks, okay, and probably with an IV antifungal. So you want to know if they have candida endophthalmitis, not only because they could lose vision in that eye, but that could be a persistent source of infection later on, okay? So if you give them two weeks of antifungal therapy and you never check their eyes, and then three weeks later they're fungemic again, okay? So eye exams. So there's, there was a study that was published in CID uh, last year that showed that about 20% of patients who were fungemic had evidence of changes on, um, um, on op, uh, ophthalmic exam consistent with candida and ophthalmitis, okay? So it's pretty significant. The old data was somewhere between 5 to 15%. So I think it depends on multiple things. It depends on the patient population. When you look at neutropenic patients, this is going to be much higher. So when you talk about antifungals, the, the question we always get is, when do you want to do empiric antifungals? And, and we run into this in the, uh, in the MICU fairly often. So, you, you know, the consensus is there is no consensus. We don't know what to do. Um, so when you, look at when you look at critically ill patients who have persistent fever, uh, who are on broad-spectrum antibiotics and still febrile, um, who have risk factors for invasive candidiasis, the biggest one being that they're neutropenic, but, you know, if they've also had um, abdominal surgery or if they've had multiple lines in. Um, and then they have evidence of colonization at multiple sites, okay? So they have uh, candida that was um, found in the urine. They have candida that was found on the, on the uh, sputum. Um, then you want to think, so these are non-sterile sites, right? Obviously, if it's in a sterile site, you're going to treat it. Then you may want to consider putting empiric antifungals on this patient, so there is some evidence, uh, and like I said earlier, I didn't go into the evidence too much because Mike has asked me to cover like 50 things today. Um, there is something called a colonization index that has been developed. Is anybody aware of this, the Canada Colonization Index? It's, it's, um, it's, it's been validated by some folks, and others have said, well, it's, it's anyway, it's very controversial. But the idea here is that if you have Canada isolated from more than um, half the um, sites that you've cultured, non-sterile sites, then the patient is at more risk for getting invasive candidiasis, okay? So some people are, are looking at that as a way of saying, well, if they've got all these other things and they've got candida um, colonization in multiple sites, we should be putting these patients on antifungals, all right? Now, others have looked at doing uh, candida prophylaxis, um, you know, putting the patients on fluconazole as they roll through the ICU door, all right? So 
that has been shown not to be very effective. Okay, there's been a study that shows that there, there might be some benefit in terms of number of patients who get infected, but others have shown that there's no um, difference at all, and in fact, you probably increase the risk of having um, fluconazole-resistant candida in your, in your ICU. So this is still a very gray area, and you're going to find a lot of people um, who debate this back and forth. My personal approach to this is if I haven't found another source and it's reasonable, then I'm, I would probably start them. But the idea here with empiric antifungals, when you look at any of the guidelines, is to start it until you've done something that shows you that it's not there. Okay? So you, you do it, but you get your cultures. What we often end up doing is they've already been on antibiotics for five days, and they haven't gotten better, and so then you start the antifungals, and then what do you do? Right? Because the idea is that you start it, and you wait two days, you get your cultures back, and you stop it Right? if it's negative. So you know, we're kind of behind, you know, behind the game there, so probably we shouldn't be starting on some of those patients. The argument's always been that you can't culture candida, and you can. It just may take a few more days than culturing bacteria. So, so it is possible to get candida in blood cultures. We see it all the time. Um, so it's, it's still something that uh, you're probably going to hear a lot of controversy about. So that was candida really, really fast. Okay, any questions on candidal infections? Again, um, candida from Bronx are, are, is essentially garbage because um, remember that the bronchoscope goes through the mouth. That's where your candida is going to come from, right? So when you get down, just like when you see Rothia species or you see um, strep viridans growing from your bronch culture, that's all mouth flora, right? So you've got you to keep that in mind. Uh, if, if you really think that somebody's got a candida pneumonia, you're going to need a biopsy to prove it, okay? And that's going to be somebody who's severely immunosuppressed, um, and it's case-reportable probably, okay? I don't think I've ever heard of anybody getting diagnosed with that. So the next fungus that I'm going to talk about is pneumocystis, which for a long time wasn't considered a, a, fun, a fungus, right? It was called a parasite. So it used to be pneumocystis carinii. Now it's pneumocystis gyrovitsi. That's how it's actually pronounced. I looked it up. Um, everybody says gyrovitsii or something like that. It's gyrovitsi. So PCP um, obviously was something that wasn't really discussed very much until the 1980s. If you look at the history of PCP, it goes back to World War II, and you saw it in malnourished children, um, especially in orphanages in like Romania and Eastern Europe. So it was seen in people who were very malnourished, usually kids, okay? But obviously in the 1980s, it sort of exploded, um, and that was because of the AIDS epidemic. So typically when we talk about um, PCP, we're talking about CD4 counts less than 200 in adults, okay? It's actually, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderfully done study in the New England Journal of Medicine from like uh, 1988 that showed why we use that number. And what they did was they, they took, um, and I was trying to get it, but it's, it's one of those archived images that takes forever to find. Um, what they looked at was CD4 counts and CD4 percentages um, it, and what, when people got PCP. And what you see is the majority of the patients are either CD4 count less than 200 or percentage less than 15. So they're inside that little box. So you can have PCP at CD4 counts of 350. It's possible. In fact, if you see somebody who's got thrush, they're at risk for PCP. Okay? So they should be on PCP prophylaxis if you see thrush. All right, so you can see it at higher CD4 counts. It's just that the majority of them are less than 200. The other big risk factor is glucocorticoid use. 
So we see this in patients who've been on steroids for a long time for um, uh, pulmonary fibrosis or what else you guys use it for? Whatever, right? <laughs> Pulmonologists use it all the time, right? Um, rheumatoid arthritis. Um, uh, hopefully you're not having somebody who's got asthma that's on steroids chronically like that. But I, I actually saw a patient in the MICU that had been on steroids for 30 years for his asthma. I was, I, it was unbelievable. I don't know how, how that happened, but it did. Um, so, you know, you want to think about glucocorticoid use. Um, other immunosuppressive drugs, anti-rejection medicines for those who have transplant, um, purine analogs, uh, infliximab, Alemtuzumab, I put that up there specifically, CAMPATH, um, for any of you guys who do surgical uh, um, critical care or medical critical care. Um, CAMPATH is, is, is the bane of the ID doc's existence, okay? This is essentially giving your patient AIDS, right? So it's CD250 um, uh, antibody, which is uh, CD250 is, is, 52 is found on um, ma macrophages. It's found on lymphocytes. So basically, when you give this CAMPATH for induction for, for transplant um, or for CLL, which is where it was approved for initially, uh, you're basically inducing an AIDS-type situation in that patient for months, not for a few days, for months to a year, okay? And there's no recovery until that just sort of wears off, okay? So you're going to see that more and more uh, because this is getting used quite a bit these days. So defects in cell-mediated immunity, cancer, especially if it's hematological malignancy, um, and you see the transplant condition, severe malnutrition, especially in children. So these are the risk factors for, for PCP. Now, um, we always think about it in terms of HIV, obviously. The clinical course is usually less severe in those without HIV because they don't, uh, um, less severe than, that in, than those without HIV uh, in HIV because there's a poor inflammatory response, right? One of the major factors in, in uh, the pathogenesis of PCP is the immune response. That's, what, that's why you give steroids, okay? That's the article I think was sent out to you guys, was the New England Journal of Medicine article on steroid use and treatment of PCP. And in the, in the 80s, everybody died from PCP. Um, and it was a while before people realized, and that's the articles you guys have, that um, steroids decreased that inflammatory effect that allowed patients to survive. So the onset is usually subacute from several days to weeks. Um, and when you guys see them in the ICU, it's usually a diagnosis that's been made, but not always. Um, and, but it's really important. I, I'm, I'm a big stickler on history and physical exam because, as Mike said, I, I do a lot of work in resource-limited settings. And so that's what you have to hang your hat on, right? It's not your, your diagnostics and your imaging and all that. So when you think about PCP, it's not three days ago, right? That's strep pneumo, okay? It's, it's, it's several days to weeks. It's a fever. It's a nagging cough. It's dry. It's not productive, Okay. Um, and the shortness of breath is the big thing, right? That's the thing that the patient tells you. I'm getting shorter, I'm getting shorter breath, and it's getting worse and worse every day, all right? I used to be able to walk five blocks. Now I walk a, a block, right? And it's not a heart failure history, right? So that's what takes you in that direction. Chest tightness and pain uh, are some of the other things. What you can see with complications is um, cavitations, um, uh, you can see pneumothorax, because remember the, the, the name of the organism, pneumocystis. Right? So it causes cysts in the lung. That's what happens with um, PCP that's untreated. Um, and you can see that the survival is pretty poor uh, in, in uh, patients who aren't treated. So I thought I had a picture. There it is. Okay, we'll get that. Um, 
So clinically, severe hypoxemia, especially if there's a clear chest x-ray or exam, if you don't hear any crackles and the per person's very, very hypoxemic, then the PCP ought to be in your differential. Uh, radiographically, the x-ray uh, butterfly or bat wing distribution, I'll tell you, I've probably seen like 100 patients with PCP, and I've seen this particular radiographic finding once. Okay, So that's the thing that you're going to read about, but that's not what you're necessarily going to see. And then on chest CT, you'll see a patchier nodular grand glass uh, um, opacity. So this is a, the typical PCP x-ray. You just see a lot of um, interstitial nodular infiltrates. But this is what it looks like when it's really bad. Okay? And I was trying to find, I have an image of, of a patient that was here in our, in our MICU. Maybe Mike can tell me if this is standard operating procedure, but he had 10 chest tubes. I, like after the... Okay, I, I think it was somebody practicing because I think after the first couple, it probably five or six probably doesn't have as much benefit. But what you get is you get these big cysts, right? And, and what you get is these Swiss cheese lungs. And you can imagine that these pop and you get, these, uh, you get the pneumothorax, okay? So this is what happens in late PCP that's been untreated, and this is obviously why people die, right? Because you don't recover from this. You don't get a normal lung after this, right? So... So that's PCP. Diagnosis. People always talk about LDH. Um, LDH is great. It's got a high negative predictive value. So if you have a, a normal LDH, it's probably not PCP. But if it's high, it doesn't have to be PCP. There are a lot of things that can give you a high LDH. Um, having said that, I had a patient who was on MedID, was not in the ICU, and had a, a negative, had a normal LDH. And the and, they, and, they, and when they did when we did the CT it was pot, I mean it was clearly it was PCP it looked like that one image that I just showed you so it's 95 percent negative predictive value all right so it does have a good predictive value but it's 95 percent right so five percent of the time you're going to be wrong um, induced sputums for PCP antigen if you get a good induced sputum it's 50 to 80 percent sensitive right so why is it 50 to 80 because it depends on who does the induction of the sputum right. So if you get a good sample, you're going to have a higher sensitivity. But BAL for PCP antigen is much higher, 90 to 100%. And if you had a focal infiltrate on the chest CT or x-ray and you went to that place, it's going to be 100%. But really, remember, with PCP, it's not usually focal. It's widespread disease. So the best way to diagnose PCP is, is by BAL. And again, 90 to 100%. Still, you know, I said 100%, depending on the study you look at, but... We've had patients, uh, well, that I can remember in the, in, the, in the MICU, had a patient who had clearly classic PCP by symptomatology, had this CT scan, and his uh, antigen from his bronch was negative. But he got better with treatment, okay? So you've you got to put your clinical suspicion into there, even with, the, with these tests that have very good specificity and sensitivity. So treatment. Uh, ideally, Bactrim is what you want to use. Um, if they're allergic to Bactrim, I desensitize them, especially if they're in the ICU. Okay? I'm not a believer that you can use um, pentamidine or um, pentamidine plus or primaquine plus clinda uh, to treat uh, severe PCP. Okay? Now, if you do a lit search on that and you look it up, there's not a whole lot of evidence that supports that. But anecdotally, um, well, there's not a whole lot of evidence that tells you anything, right? So sort of the accepted um, fact has been that uh, Bactrim is the best, and that's what you should be using in your patients who have PCP. So uh, again, if they have severe hypoxemia, so if they have a, um, a PaO2 less than 70 or an oxygen gradient greater than 35, uh, then you should be putting them on steroids. 
And so pretty much anybody who gets admitted to the ICU with PCP should be fitting this criteria, I think. So you should be using steroids for them. And it's 21 days of treatment. There are all these other drugs, um, but we're not going to get into it. Uh, Majid, we had a patient recently who had methemoglobinemia from Dapsone, right? Wasn't it Dapsone? So remember, Dapsone is one of the, the drugs that we use for prophylaxis, and you want to keep that in mind. You were the one who actually picked it up, right? I didn't believe you. I thought you were making stuff up. Um, so you want to think about methemoglobinemia. And there was another patient at the same time who was on something else. Pentamidine. Yeah, right. Right, pentamidine and dapsone. So they both give you methemoglobin. So we had two of those in one week, right? You probably won't see another one for five years. But um, you want to think about methemoglobinemia with these patients when you've got them on these treatments. All right, any questions on PCP? No? All right, so cryptococcus, the next fungus we're going to talk about. Um, so this is the India ink. You can see that the, uh, the, the cell wall excludes the India ink. That's the um, classic way of diagnosing cryptococcus. So it's not considered part of the normal flora, unlike candida, right? So you see candida, you, you think, oh, well, it doesn't necessarily have to be infection. But if you see crypto, then it's probably real, okay? So there's usually some level of compromised immunity in these patients. Um, HIV is the big one. Uh, lupus, diabetes, sarcoid, transplant patients, especially solid organ, um, um, chronic steroid use uh, for a number of different reasons, cirrhosis. And, you know, I had the, the, the strangest case of cryptococcal disease that I ever saw in a non-immunocompromised patient was a young guy who came into a medicine service and basically had fever, and had fever and abdominal pain. And the medical team had him on um, Zosin and Vank, right? Right, the two drugs I hate. So Zosin and Vank, Zosin and Vank, because that's what we give everybody. We're the University of Maryland. We give more Zosin than anybody else, right? So we gave them Zosin and Vank. And they actually, they kept culturing him every single day. They had him on Zosin and Vank. They cultured him every single day. On the fifth day, the actual the culture drawn on the fifth day, which then grew out on the sixth, no, the seventh or eighth day, grew cryptococcus, okay? So the first five blood cultures were all negative. And what he ended up having was he had a cryptococcoma in his liver. He had a huge mass of cryptococcus in his liver. And he's, he was like a 26-year-old, young, healthy guy, and I was trying to figure out why this would happen. And we found nothing except that he was hep C infected. But he didn't have cirrhosis. He was just hep C infected. And, and so I don't know what, what was uh, his predisposing condition other than having hep C, which can do it, right? Hep C is an immunocompromised state, to, especially later on in disease. So he had hep C, and he got cryptococcal disease with a cryptococcoma. And if any of you watch The Wire, or watched The Wire, you know that, uh, um, what's that game, guy's name, Marlo? Remember he grazed pigeons up on the roof? That's a common practice in Baltimore. So, the, so everybody's like, oh, he's a pigeon. He's, he's grazing pigeons. He's racing pigeons, whatever they do with the pigeons, right? Well, there's very little evidence that uh, suggests that pigeons are associated with cryptococcal meningitis, although that's the teaching that everybody kind of remembers. There's, there's actually one documented case of cryptococcal meningitis occurring because of uh, pigeon handling. All right, So it's, it's everywhere. It's everywhere in the environment. And in sub-Saharan Africa, cryptococcal meningitis is now the most common cause of meningitis. Okay, It has surpassed strep pneumo and Neisseria and viral, okay? So that's because of the high rate of HIV disease, all right? So that's, it's, it's a pretty significant infection, and it's found everywhere. So it's acquired through inhalation of, of, the, of the organism. So the typical presentation is pneumonia, 
except most people don't present because they don't get very sick with it, all right? But for lung disease, um, you can get, you can have asymptomatic disease to ARDS, just depends on uh, uh, the host factors. Um, normal host, one-third are asymptomatic, found on chest x-ray, so you see these single, uh, multiple non-calcified nodules. Um, you can also get patchy infiltrates, hyalur lymphadenopathy, pleural effusions. Um, and you can have colonization of the endobronchials. Uh, uh, you can have endobronchial colonization. In these patients who have just lung disease, your serum cryptococcal antigen will be negative. Okay? Your serum cryptococcal antigen will be negative if it's just in the lungs. However, in HIV patients, this can progress very quickly. They can be very sick. And um, these are the patients you might see in, ending up in an ICU. Okay? So you can have nodules again over 90% will also have CNS disease. So we don't ever think about it with cryptomeningitis because we're treating them anyway, but it's all, I mean, you know, you should think about is there a respiratory component to their disease and is that from cryptococcal pneumonia? Because the meningitis didn't just happen, right? The entry point is always the lungs. So CNS disease is the thing that we talk about the most. It's the most common manifestation of, of disease, especially in HIV patients. Now, when we talk about cryptococcal disease, we're usually talking about AIDS patients, but it's also seen in transplant patients, okay, especially uh, in patients who have been on steroids for a long period of time. Um, usually a subacute meningitis with a meningoencephalitis, symptoms gradually develop, so it's not something that's going to be two days. This is not meningococcal meningitis. This is not strep pneumomeningitis. This is something that's been developing over several weeks, um, and I've seen it where somebody had been compa complaining of symptoms for about three months, okay? And again, remember, they, uh, these patients are not going to have a robust immune system to cause the inflammatory response, so you may not see the classic findings till later. Um, so headache, fever, malaise are the most common, stiff neck, vomiting, photophobia. But the other big thing that you want to start thinking about uh, when, you, when you want to start thinking about crypto is memory loss, confusion, and cranial nerve palsies, okay? Especially if they have difficulty hearing and seeing, okay? Those are both due to the increased intracranial pressure. So if you see those, um, and then confusion. And often you'll see that these patients, when they come in, they're confused, they have fever, they have AIDS, you do the LP, and all of a sudden they're awake, Okay, because you decrease the ICP. All right, so that's one of the things to consider there. Focal neurological uh, de deficits are rare, other than the ones I talked about. So um, the only time that you may see focal neurological deficits is if they've developed a cryptococcoma, like the, the patient I was talking about that had one in his liver. You can get those in the brain. They're less commonly seen in AIDS patients and more commonly seen in people who are immunocompetent. So you have increased intracranial pressure. This is the reason why um, we always harp on the fact that you should be getting an opening pressure on these patients. If the opening, I, and you know, Mike, you can probably say it. What's the highest opening pressure you've seen? Yeah, yeah. And what is that? It's like 60, right? I think. So I think the manometer, actually, Mike probably can tell us. You used to be an ER doc. Um, so wait, is it 60 on the manometer on the... 58, something like that, right? But we've, I've seen it come up over the top. So, um, yeah, you can get really high opening pressures with this. Now, it's, so when you have somebody that's got a really high opening pressure, obviously what you want to uh, do is bring that opening pressure down, but you don't want to do it too quickly, okay? So there's concerns for herniation of uh, increased headache and things like that. So the, the big things are um, headache, confusion, somnolence, um, cranial nerve palsies, um, fading uh, vision. Like I said, cryptococcomas are not very common, 
There was a, a cryptococcal outbreak in uh, Oregon, I think. It was Cryptococcus gadii, and it was related to these eucalyptus trees that were in this park. And apparently eucalyptus trees, for some reason, there's an association with them and Cryptococcus gadii, so which is commonly not seen in this part of the, country, of, of the world, but um, there have been outbreaks with that. So the CSF may be normal in 25 to 30%, high opening pressures. White count might be mildly elevated. In fact, if you have an AIDS patient that has a normal white count, their prognosis is much worse. Okay? So the lower the white count, the worse the prognosis in an AIDS patient who has cryptococcal meningitis. You can do cultures. You can do cryptococcal antigen tests. has a high sensitivity and specificity. Um, serum cryptococcal antigen is helpful in places of high prevalence and in AIDS patients. If you have an AIDS patient, you can do a cryptococcal um, serum antigen without doing the LP, but of course you're going to want to do the LP because you want to know what the opening pressure is, but that is a way to diagnose this. In immunocompetent patients, serum cryptococcal antigens not as helpful for determining if they have meningitis. Okay? So the treatment here is amphotericin B. Um, guidelines will say amphotericin B plus flucytosine. Uh, we don't, I don't use it a lot, and actually a lot of the uh, clinicians here don't use it a lot because there's a lot of toxicity with that drug. And when you look at the, the, the literature on this, the reason people recommended this is because there's a faster clearance of cryptococcus from the, um, from the CSF with that drug if you use the combination drug, but there's no um, difference in morbidity or mortality. And to me, the most important thing is, uh, is the morbidity and mortality, right? It doesn't really matter if it clears the, the CSF faster if, if it doesn't change your outcomes. And so it's got a lot of side effects. You really should be monitoring it. To get a drug level for this here it takes about five days, right? So by that time, it's too late because you may have a high level. So, and then you can switch to fluconazole for maintenance. There's a lot of work being done in resource-limited settings now trying to find a way to do just oral combinations for treatment of cryptococcal meningitis because you can't do IV, but I think that's going to be inferior. Um, serial LPs to decrease ICP, not a whole lot of literature out there to support that. It just sort of makes sense. Um, so it is in the official recommendations. If you, um, and this is how a lot of medicine residents, uh, you know, a few years ago when we were still residents, we got signed off on LPs by doing this, right? And we had a lot more patients with cryptococcal meningitis, and so we used to just go in there every day and tap them. And, and we, get, we would get signed off on our LPs that way. But um, if, if you go on for a week or two doing this, then you need to call neurosurgery and think about putting a shunt in. And it's always a struggle to try to get one, but um, that's really the appropriate management, especially at two weeks. If you're doing um, daily LPs for two weeks, you really need to get a shunt in. Any qu questions on, on that? Yeah. Do you just aim for like a 20% decrease? For the... Yes, 20% decrease, exactly, perfect. Which is sometimes difficult, especially when it's really, really high. So again, so what you do is you, you, uh, you drain the fluid, and then you put the stopcock back, and, and then you see where you are, right? So you remeasure your, your pressures. And it's very doable, it's easy. Um, in, in Zambia, I taught the residents how to do it with a ruler and a piece of IV tubing, okay? Because we just had to figure out a way to do it. We didn't have manometers. So it's, it's something that anybody can do. All right, aspergillus. So aspergillus is much more of a, a, a disease of, of neutropenic patients, so we're going to talk about that. So, uh, Mike, you're a good Catholic. You know what that is? 
It's for holy water. That's what it is. That's what it's called, the thing for the holy water. Um, that's called an aspergillum. Yeah, so that's where it gets its name, aspergillum, aspergillus. That's what it looks like. Okay, see, you learned something. Um, so invasive aspergillosis. Um, the classic risk factors are prolonged neutropenia, chemotherapy for malignancies is usually the cause, stem cell transplants, solid organ transplants, especially lung, heart, and liver. Uh, these have higher uh, immunosuppression than, than, say, kidneys. High doses of glucocorticoids, for example, for autoimmune diseases, inflammatory diseases, cancers, transplants, and then other drugs that can lead to chronically impaired um, cellular immune response. So um, we don't have any NIH fellows, right? Or do they listen in or anything? No. So at the NIH, their entire ID ward, they have an inpatient ID ward. All they do is see chronic granulomatous disease. Right? So you will never see it because they all go to NIH. They become experts on this. Right, So they get um, invasive aspergillosis. HIV uh, used to be thought of as an AIDS-defining illness, not so much because it wasn't as common as people thought it would be. But then treatment with monoclonal antibodies, I've already talked about CAMPATH. Again, CAMPATH here, autoimmune diseases, inflammatory diseases. So what are the, some of the clinical syndromes? Um, Probably not something you'll see as much in the ICU, um, but ABPA uh, is, is, is a common uh, syndrome associated with, with aspergillus disease. Um, allergic sinusitis is the same sort of mechanism as ABPA. You can get colonization of fungal ball called an aspergilloma. Um, you can get all these other things. But let's talk about these, which is what you'll see in the ICU. So you can get invasive pulmonary aspergillosis, um, tracheobronchitis, sinusitis, disseminated disease, meaning you'll have positive blood cultures um, if you were to culture for mold, and cerebral aspergillosis, osteomyelitis. We're going to talk mostly about pulmonary because that's what's important in terms of the critical care setting. Usually the symptoms are progressive dry cough, dyspnea, pleuritic chest pain, and fever despite broad-spectrum antibiotics. So if any of you have done internal medicine here and you were in the cancer center, the typical way of approaching somebody who's neutropenic who has a fever is they get Zosin and Vank, and then it's a week later, and they still have a fever, and then they get their Voriconazole, okay? And then somebody does a chest CT, and they see a bunch of nodules, all right? So that's the, the typical way that, that, that you pick up these patients. Or it may not be a week. It might be a couple of days. But that's, that's the usual... Uh, process by which people are diagnosed with invasive pulmonary aspergillosis. Not by bronch, not, it's just usually a fever and then the nodules on a chest CT or something like that. Hemoptysis is, is the big one that, you know, this is an angio-invasive disease. So anytime you have a neutropenic patient that has cough and fever and then develops bleeding hemoptysis, you've got to think about aspergillosis. So when you look at the radiographic findings, um, you see nodular pulmonary infiltrates. There's a whole bunch of um, things that can do that. A halo sign, which is early and transient, and I'll show you what that looks like. And then you can get pleural base wedge-shaped densities or cavity lesions, also known as an air crescent sign, which is usually a good prognosis because that means that you have an immune system. Okay, That means your immune system's coming back, and that's, that's why you've developed that lesion. So this is the halo sign, right? So you have a, a that, and this is a big lesion, obviously. But you see, like, there's a halo around the, the nodule. Okay, so that's the halo sign. And, oh, I don't think I did it. There it is. Okay, so this is uh, invasive aspergillosis um, that then develops into a cavitary lesion with an aspergilloma. 
Okay? So you can get these fungal balls known as aspergillomas inside empty cavities, or you can have a cavity develop, and then you get this. So typically you might see this in somebody who might have had TB before and had a cavity, and now they get an aspergilloma sitting inside of it. All right? We don't see it a lot, but that's, that's sort of the classic description. But these aspergillomas, these fungal balls, are usually not invasive. And so the question is, do you even treat them? Do you just let, leave them alone? And that's what you often do. But if they then become immunocompromised for some reason, they can reactivate or, or become an angioinvasive. So you can see on this um, uh, biopsy, it's a discrete nodule. Um, and you can see sort of this, this um, uh, necrosis around it. That's exactly what you see here on the, um, on the path. In culture, it grows pretty quickly. Um, it's, uh, it requires um, sporulation for, for identification, and it can be negative in up to 50%, the cultures can, which is why it's so difficult to, to diagnose this. Um, positive predictive value for positive culture, meaning if you have a positive culture, does it mean you have an infection, right? So which we didn't discuss is you can, a lot of us can have aspergillus in our lungs, especially people with chronic lung disease, COPD patients, emphysema, those kinds of patients, um, pulmonary fibrosis patients. They're often going to be colonized with aspergillus or with uh, atypical mycobacteria, right? So it makes it a little bit tougher to diagnose um, true infection in these patients. If you see a positive culture in a, in a stem cell transplant patient, it's, it's probably real, okay? But if you look at an HIV patient, it's probably not, all right? It's probably just there, okay? It's colonizing like anything else would. That's sputum. Sputum, yeah, yeah, that's right, sputum cultures. Um, so there are non-invasive diagnostics that you can do. Uh, obviously, BAL is, is ideal, but again, the sensitivity is not so great. You can do a galactomannan assay. Um, you guys have heard of that, galactomannan, right? So it's a polysaccharide cell wall component, um, which is released by growing hyphae. So that's helpful because maybe that suggests it's not colonization, although that's still not very clear. Um, the sensitivity is as low as 40% in non-hematological malignancies. Um, but the, you know, it does have some utility in the right patient population, especially those high-risk patients here. Um, who have had stem cell transplant, but and especially if you do it from a BAL rather than a sputum, so you get a deep sample. And, but there are false positives, and the, and the most common culprit for that is um, piperacillin tazobactam, um, which we use a lot of, right? So if you've had a patient on Zosin and then you try to do a galactamine and it clouds the picture a little bit. There are other um, fungi that can give you false positives. Uh, penicillium, anybody know what penicillium is? No, ever heard of it? Anybody from Southeast Asia? No, <laughs> well, that's where you see it, right? It's an endemic fungi of Southeast Asia, seen in China, Vietnam, places like that, much like histoplasmosis, okay? We have histo here, I'm gonna cover that in the endemic fungi next. Treatment is voriconazole. Um, the old treatment was always amphotericin B. There are multiple studies that show that voriconazole is probably better than amphotericin B. There are some centers that use echinocandins, but echinocandins have not been approved for invasive asper pulmonary aspergillosis because we just don't have very good data on it. Um, duration depends on the site of infection and the underlying immune status. Um, again, that's probably where you want to have ID involved. Um, the case fatality rates. This is old. This is from 2001, but you see overall... Um, fatality rates 58 per, uh, uh, percent. BMT it's 87 percent. Okay, and uh, HIV patients don't usually get pulmonary aspergillosis, but if they do, they die. All right, but it's not usually seen there. Um, lung transplant much lower. 
So that was aspergillosis very briefly. Any questions? All right, so I'm going to talk about the endemic fungi really quickly. I'm only going to talk about two of them. Uh, I'm going to talk about histoplasmosis first because it is something we see here in Baltimore and in Maryland. So this is an old um, study from 1969 where they looked at naval recruits, and what they did was they did like a PPD essentially, except it was for histoplasmosis. All right, and they looked at reactivity in millimeters just like you would with PC, uh, with the TB uh, PPD. And you can see the Mississippi River Valley, obviously, has got one of the highest concentrations of histoplasmosis-positive um, uh, recruits. But you can see right here in, in Maryland, Eastern Shore and then Western Maryland, I, I guess it's considered Western Maryland, right outside of Baltimore, essentially, right? So we have a fair amount of histoplasmosis, even though everybody always says Mississippi River Valley, okay? So you got to think about histo in this area. So in U.S. studies... Um, two to five percent of AIDS patients in area of endemicity will have histoplasmosis, and up to 25 percent in selected cities such as Indianapolis. Okay, when you look at the Midwest, places like that, um, and seen in less than one percent of patients in non-endemic regions. So usually these are patients that have reactivation of prior disease, much like tuberculosis, right? You get infected with tuberculosis in um, Zambia, and then you come to the United States and you have a positive PPD, right? So it's the same situation. Um, for most people, 90% are going to be asymptomatic or have a mild flu-like um, illness. Uh, incubation is, is 7 to 21 days, but usually symptomatic by day 14. You get a fever, a headache, sort of a, uh, a viral syndrome type of thing, nonproductive cough, chest pain, malaise, weakness, fatigue. So easily could be confused for influenza. Uh, physical exam is usually unremarkable, and you might get some crackle, crackles and some hepatosplenomegaly um, that's usually not very common. So this is acute pulmonary histoplasmosis. This is what happens to the person that goes spelunking, right? They go into a cave, and they come back out, and they have this respiratory infection. That's acute pulmonary histoplasmosis. Now, I, a couple years ago, I was asked to do the CPC, and it was a case of um, pulmonary It was actually disseminated histoplasmosis in a patient that was on a monoclonal antibody, and his thing had been he'd been to Mexico, um, which is where he was from, and apparently there's a fair amount of histo in certain parts of Mexico. But the big thing I found when I was doing my research was there's an outbreak in Acapulco about 10 years ago with college students who went there for spring break, right? So they had this, this hotel where they were working on the um, staircase. So they'd, they'd closed the staircase off. They roped it off. Nobody was supposed to use the stairwell. They were only supposed to use the um, elevators. Well, a bunch of drunk kids decided that wasn't going to work for them, so they started to go up and down up and down the staircase where there was a lot of bat guano, okay? And they had bats all throughout there. So they had about 1,000 kids that got acute pulmonary histoplasmosis from that, all right? So it's, it, you know, it's usually seen with construction, much like aspergillus, also often seen in construction sites and things like that. Um, so acute pulmonary histoplasmosis. Chest x-ray is usually patchy pneumonitis, maybe some hilar lymphadenopathy, 6% um, can develop acute pericarditis, but most are going to be asymptomatic. What they'll get is a gone complex. Remember gone complex from tuberculosis. This is the same process. You'll get a lymph node. You'll get the um, calcified lesions, splenic or liver calcification similar to TB. So when you go to sub-Saharan Africa and you CT people, you just take them and, and CT them randomly, you're going to see splenic calcifications. You're going to see liver calcifications. That's TB. Okay, that's TB that's been, uh, that's, that was turned into a granuloma and that's been calcified. In the United States, if you see it, it's probably histoplasmosis, okay? 
Now, this is more serious. Progressive disseminated histoplasmosis, fever, malaise, weight loss, cough, diarrhea. Now you're going to see your hepatosplenomegaly. Um, you're going to have crackles, hilar lymphadenopathy. Um, uh, in, uh, you're going to have liver disease, anemia. And that's because it actually directly um, uh, affects the bone marrow. And you might see skin findings, especially in AIDS patients. The acute process, usually asymptomatic, but if it's persistent for more than a month or have hypoxemia, you can give them mitraconazole. But for disseminated disease, you're going to need to put them in the hospital and give them um, amphotericin B. Okay? And then you give them suppression with itraconazole afterwards. In places of high, um, uh, high endemicity of histo, um, you're going to give um, patients who have CD4 counts of less than 150 itraconazole. All right. So again, we talked about this with HIV patients, which is the only time I've seen it here and disseminated, except for the one patient I told you about who was getting monoclonal um, antibody therapy for ankylosing spondylitis. That's the guy who went to Mexico. All right. So you will see it with these agents. It's actually on the black box warning for things like Remicade. All right. So uh, think about that in those situations. So this is the other one I'm going to talk about. I'm not going to talk about blasto because we don't really see it as much. And blasto doesn't have a latent disease like um, histo and um, coxy do. Okay? So this is, um, this is a picture I actually took in um, Arizona. This is, you know what this kind of cactus is called? Saguaro cactus, yeah. So if you see saguaro cactus, then you should think coxy. All right, that's a very easy way of figuring out where you're going to have coccidiomycosis, right? So Dr. Charles Davis, who's one of our um, ID docs, he's also a trans uh, he does mostly transplant ID. He refuses to go to anywhere that has cacti like this, right? And because he's African American, and there's a higher predisposition for African Americans to get coxy, all right? So this is what it looks like. Uh, you can see the areas, parts of California, but mostly here in Arizona and New Mexico, going into um, Texas and Mexico. 50% of cases occur in Arizona and California. Uh, travel history is important. Reactivation can occur many years later. When I was an intern here, there was a guy who got admitted for meningitis. He was confused. He was encephalopathic, they thought, and they said he was talking gibberish. Well, he was actually speaking in French because he was Haitian, and nobody knew he was speaking French. But it turns out that he had driven cross-country from Arizona, and when they did the LP and they did the culture, he grew coccidio, all right? So he had coccidio meningitis. That was here um, 10 years ago, Mike, 10 years ago. Yeah, Mike and I are old. Um, so travel history is important for that reason. Dissemination is more likely in people of African or Filipino descent. Not very clear why, probably related to HLA um, haplotypes, all right? So that's why Dr. Davis says he'll never go to um, Arizona. Similar to community-acquired pneumonia, dyspnea, fever, night sweats. This is also called valley fever. Uh, a handful of baseball players every year during spring training get this, right? You'll see it reported. Um, and they're not the sick ones, right? But you can get extra pulmonary disease like meningitis, um, classic skin lesions. The treatment for this is amphotericin B followed by suppression with fluconazole and prophylactic fluconazole in endemic areas in patients who have AIDS. Again, you're not probably going to see this very commonly. Well, you're not going to see it here. But, it, but we, like, we, like I said, we saw one when I, when I was an intern here. So you got to think about travel history because this is a kind of disease that can be latent and then reactivate later, much like histoplasmosis. Blasto doesn't do that, okay? And so coxie is one of those that you want to consider for that reason. All right. Any questions? No? All right. Thank you very much. <laughs>